Dr. Danielle Malek-Rusa is my guest on the Scholars Podcast today. She's a 2004 John Monash Scholar. Danielle is an internationally recognized lawyer, currently working for the World Bank. She's had an unbelievable career, a true force of nature. Dr. Danielle Malek-Rusa, welcome to the program. Thank you, Justness. It's great to be here today. And you're joining us from Sydney, I understand. I am. I moved to Sydney uh, in August 2019, which was great timing uh, with the benefit of hindsight, but I still work to Washington, D.C. hours. So I'm a telecommuter to Washington, D.C. So how do you actually do that? What sort of hours do you keep? It's pretty brutal. Um, I get up most days uh, between 2 and 3 a.m. so that I have a significant overlap of hours with Washington, D.C., and I continue until the day is done. But like many attorneys, the the day is never really done. You're answering calls and emails around the clock seven days a week. I also manage a fairly large family. We have five kids, all eight and under, only three (laughs) of which that are at school at the moment. So it's it's a lot of... uh, managing, juggling, but like many working mothers. Mother of five. That is unbelievable. That is unbelievable. Well, we had, we did have a set of eight-year-old twins and our four-year-old boy came along and we thought, we'll just try for one more because it would, hor- it would be terrible to be you know, the, the youngest child with a set of twins above you and to feel like the third wheel. Mm-hmm. So we we'll get him a little play friend before it's too, too late. <laughs> and, and as fate would have it, he ended up uh, the quintessential middle child between two sets of twins. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, you are, you, you are um, an inaugural uh, recipient of the uh, John Monash Foundation Scholarship. So you're the first year that went through in 2004. Is that's, that right? That's great. I think we had a cohort of 10. Uh, and I always wondered to myself how I made it through. When I look at the the, the qualifications and, and goals and achievements of my cohort, I was, I was so impressed with what I saw, and I still am every time I look at the awardees. Uh, so, yeah, I think I was one that snuck through the crack. Oh, stop it. How did, now, how did that scholarship come about? How did you become aware of it, given it was the, uh, well, it was the first year? You know, I had a I had a very interesting academic background. I did arts law straight out of school. Uh, I always intended to do a PhD in the arts and, and not to go straight to law. The PhD I did, I ended up doing part-time because I had to work and it was eight years part-time. By the time I got back to law, uh, the time that I'd already spent doing it didn't count. So I had to commence a three-year graduate law degree. And when mm-hmm. I finished that, I thought, now is the time for me to specialize in the area I was interested in, which was international law. I looked around for scholarships, uh, so many of the scholarships that were available at the time, and I think it's still true today, point Australian scholars toward Britain. But Mm. none of the law courses that were offered at the master's level for students like me really interested me. They were very, I think, old school, conservative, not necessarily cutting edge, you know, bachelor, civil law, that sort of stuff. And really what I wanted to do was look at some emerging fields of law, both in international law, but also more generally. And many of the US universities did offer those. They they would look at cyber law, which was back in 2004, very much emerging. Uh, they looked at bioethics, which has become increasingly relevant over time. And, I, and so I really wanted something that looked to the US. There was just the Fulbright, 
and then I lucked upon the Monash Awards and I was thrilled to find something that gave me the flexibility to choose where I went that didn't mm -hmm. dictate the location of the study. And uh, with respect to um, your, your choice of Harvard, what, are, what other institutions were in the mix? Uh, I had... I had, uh, let me see, it's such a long time ago, New York University, I mm -hmm. had Harvard, I had, I think I had Cornell in there. Uh, I had five universities, so I was accepted okay. to all five of them. Harvard also offered me a, um, a, a full um, scholarship for the purposes of, of, of paying for the residence and, and the course material and, and the course itself. So that was an incentive to, to go there. But they also had, of course, these cutting edge courses that I was interested in. So that was that was the one university that I really do want to get into. Mm -hmm. And I was thrilled that I was accepted and thrilled that they also uh, awarded me additional financial support. And so what did you actually study when you were at Harvard? It's a master's in international law. Okay. And what was that experience like, um, study, studying at one of, arguably, one of the, the most famous universities on the planet? I mean, it was, it, it, it was priceless. Uh, the master's course is slightly different from the, the normal JD law course. I mean, mm -hmm. obviously coming up through the ranks of the JD course, uh, future Supreme Court justices, future presidents, uh, it, it really is uh, a distinguished crew. The master's course tends to attract a lot of international students. Mm -hmm. um, I guess they, we had something like 70 countries represented, some US, some US students, but most of those US students are those that are looking to become academics in the field of law and for which a, a Harvard master's obviously places them in a great position to get into a teaching position in the top Ivy League universities. So I loved being exposed to the breadth of internationality of the other students in my course. Uh, I, I had some amazing people in, in the course that had phenomenal life experiences. Where were, they, where were they from, like literally all over the world? Oh, literally all over the world, from Africa, from Europe, from Central America, from Asia Pacific region, from everywhere. I remember one particular girl who who had come from Rwanda and was a oversaw some of the reconciliation trials in Rwanda following the genocide. Uh, she was perhaps the most um, compassionate, forgiving person I ever met. She'd lost her family in the genocide mm. and then had to sit on the reconciliation courts actually hearing the testimony of neighbours who had committed atrocities on her own family members. But the, the amount of forgiveness and and, and uh, she showed in the and compassion in trying to find a solution that was right for her country in the long run, notwithstanding the personal anguish it brought her, was was really bracing to me. I mean, to be in the company of people like that, that had undergone horrific or amazing experiences, depending on, on who they were and who had overcome adversity and, and, and were now thriving in Harvard. That, to me, was one of the highlights of my experience mm. there. Mm. The other, I think, would be the sheer amount of resources that are available, both in terms of uh, materials and um, access to academics of high standing in a place like Harvard. I mean, they were constantly bringing in uh, high-note high speakers that you would normally not have access to to talk candidly to you about the work that they did and the research they were doing and to inspire you. Uh, so, Any, Anyone come to mind? 
Well, I remember, I remember Tony Blair's wife came in and spoke to us about her law career. And, um, okay, yeah. You know, it, it, but they, you know, obviously they, they sometimes provide candid, candid uh, insights to the work that they do and the processes that yes. they, they're involved in. And, and uh, without going into detail here, it was, all, it was fascinating to hear that because you have to go into these situations with, with open eyes anyway, so it's mm. important to know the political elements that feed into it or the other considerations that feed into a legal practice. And it's something that's been important in the work that I do because the work I do is often highly sensitive and can be politicised and it's important to understand you're not just dealing with uh, cut and cut and dry legal issues but mm. you know they have a distinctly political element to them and uh and the sensitivities and complexities that 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 go beyond uh purely legal considerations so once you finished your harvard studies uh and obtained the masters what did you do then i was working before i left australia as a decision maker for the Native Title Tribunal. And I've been doing that for okay. three years when yes. I left. And I, I actually loved that work. It gave me a a, a brand new uh, or, or a reinvigorated appreciation of Indigenous people and their, mm-hmm. their struggles. Um, over time, I mean, I, I wrote decisions, administrative decisions. I was one of four administrative decision makers on Native Title, uh, the registration test and use of resources. Over time, our our decisions had been taken to the federal court and the high court and upheld. But what it had done is it really delineated the scope of the registration test and what resources and, and rights Indigenous people could have as they move forward in the native title process. So by the time I left to the US, there wasn't a lot of uh, wiggle room in understanding what the law was as it related to this uh, native title application. So uh, I felt that even if I had returned to that position, it probably was not going to uh, provide the same benefits to Indigenous people as it had when we were still fleshing out what the law could and couldn't do for the, for the benefit of Indigenous people. So when I in the US, I did look for other opportunities. Yes. Interestingly enough, the only one I really applied for was the World Bank because it has that public law element to it. Yes, Harvard are very good at connecting you to top law firms in New York and elsewhere, but my interest didn't lay, lie in that direction. My interests have always been public law and what law can do for people more generally. Uh, and and the World Bank came up, and I thought this is something this you looks know, good. in my, yeah. my ballpark and. Uh, I, I went for an interview in the middle of my exams. I'm not sure that I did a very great interview, but obviously I must, I must have impressed Something somebody. happened, yes. And before you know it, I, I got an offer. Initially, it was meant to be a two-year legal associates program. The idea was they'd gather together 10 people who were from different areas of the world but had their master's in law from an Ivy League university in the yes. States. Yep. And that those people would go home to their home countries after two years to become you know, leaders in their own field and that they would bring this institutional knowledge of what the bank does and its processes back to their governments. But after after having us for two years and teaching us all about their operations and the way the bank functions and its policies, I think they saw the benefit of retaining some of us uh, to work within the legal department. So they opened a competitive selection process after two years and I think four of us were competitively selected um, from external sources to to take the role of counsel in the bank, and, and I was one of those. And you've been there ever since? 
I've been there since 2005, believe it or not. Unbelievable. So what, where you can, give us a sense of what some of the work you do is all about. Paint us a picture of um, some of the work you do at the World Bank. So I look after legal institutional affairs and I provide advice on legal institutional matters on behalf of the General Counsel of the Bank. My clients are the President of the World Bank, the Board of Executive Directors, which is the, gov- the, the on-site governing body, and mm-hmm. the Board of Governors, who are the, in most cases, the treasurers or equivalent position of uh, our member countries, and we have 189 member countries. A daily work might be anything from advising on membership of any of the World Bank institutions, that's the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, International Development Association, Multilateral Investment Guarantee Agency, International Finance Corporation, or ICSID, which is our, our, our I guess, our arbitration uh, tribunal. Mm. Uh, it could be so membership issues. It might be, for example, in 2018, we undertook an historic capital increase. Uh, we uh, uh, 60, no, I think it was 160 billion dollars uh, of increase in uh, the the bank's capital share uh, holding, which has enabled us and set us up properly to be able to finance unexpected. Uh, development needs, such as in the current pandemic, where where we've we've had to come up with extraordinary amounts of financing to assist member countries to cope with the pandemic, not just from the health perspective, but also the impact on their economies. Uh, it might be if there is a coup in a country, and the World Bank has to we have to figure out who we're dealing with. Are we dealing with the de facto government? Are we dealing with the government which has been ousted? There are rules around that. And uh, as an institution, we have to know who is it that we're dealing with. <laughs> Who's that. running the show? <laughs> yeah. Those those might be the, some of the issues that I deal with. And obviously anything to do with the, the roles, responsibilities and processes of the boards, the relationship uh, and, and functions between the president and the boards, uh, any of those issues fall in my court. Mm. So has it been difficult, uh, you now living uh, back in Sydney, trying to fit all, uh, you mentioned earlier that you sort of work around the clock, um, but trying to get your job done in the in the middle of the night or, you know, 2, 3, 4 a.m. reporting into um, the United States? It is. You know, I always joke with my husband that it's not like I'm waking up at three in the morning and, and, and just doing data entry and sip a cup of coffee. <laughs> Usually the moment I awake goes from zero to 100%. <laughs> there's there's a, a vice president or, or the general counsel on the line needing immediate, thoughtful advice on a sensitive and complex issue. So, you know, and no, ca- no coffee in sight. Oh, so, dear. So I can tell you, I I grace the door of my local cafe the moment they open at seven a.m. Uh, but yes, it, it is difficult. Uh, but I, not it, not impossible. It's, no, it's not impossible. I mean, I, I I think there are many working parents that do this all the time, and I'm just one of those. I mean, it might seem like my situation is a little bit more extreme, but uh, you know, there are many people that that work crazy hours to try to meet the family and their work obligations. Mm. And, is that I that ideal? No, from many perspectives, but you tried to do your best in all the areas where you're required. So just on that, you mentioned obviously um, five kids, all under eight. Uh, you're working at the other end of the day. So how do you, like, you know, because I know in my household it's busy of a morning, people getting ready, going to work, getting things done. How do you try to manage that 
and work at the same time. That would be seemingly a very difficult task. My husband is home with me uh, mm-hmm. at the moment. He was deploying overseas. He, he, he's worked for the U.S. government. He was a colonel in the U.S. Marine Corps for many years. He's retired from that. Okay. And he was spending nine months of every year in Afghanistan or Iraq. Uh, really? Became, <laughs> yes. It became increasing up until we left for Australia, really. It became increasingly difficult for me to manage the five kids on my own. Try. We did have a living au pair in the States. Yep. Go to work. Yes. Uh so with with COVID, it's been something of a blessing because some of his programs in Afghanistan were shut down and I forbid him to, to leave the country. To go back. Yeah, you're not allowed. Uh, yeah, so, so he's here and he does manage most of the breakfast shift, as we might say. Yes. And we do have people that come in and help us. But we, we always joke that we go between complete pandemonium and utter chaos. <laughs> so do you... When do, you, when do you have your downtime, Danielle? Are there any, any moments where you think, you know, I just want to just chill out on the, on the lounge and, you know, and relax? Uh, usually it's between about 11 p.m. and 2 a.m. when I fall into an exhausted sleep. Mm. Uh, we, look, I, we live near the ocean. I do love to swim in the ocean year-round. So if I can get away for 10 minutes to, to dive into the, to, into the rock pool yes. here, uh, I'm, uh, that, that tends to bring me back to a, a happy place and I get on with the day. Now, tell me about your PhD. Um, I'm very interested in this because I've got a note saying um, you transcribed a 14th century Irish manuscript into English. <laughs> so yes. what, what on earth went on there? Not particularly vocational. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, let, let's see. I'm not, How did that happen? When I left school, I was always interested in both the humanities and, I guess, the, the, the mathematics and the, and, the, and the sciences. Yes. And doing an arts law degree, there's not much scope for, uh, I guess, uh, entertaining that side of my brain that was interested in, in patterns and science and mathematics. And the option came up within my arts course of, of doing medieval Welsh and Old Irish. And, and if you've ever studied languages, and unless you've learned them from a young age, you realise there's a lot of rote learning, a lot of thinking about patterns and grammatical constructions. And I rather mm. enjoyed taking some courses that were translation of, of foreign languages, even if they were uh, ancient languages. Uh, when I finished my arts honours arts degree and I didn't yet want to continue to law, I wanted to explore some of some yes. other things uh, I thought, well, let's let's pursue this. Let's do a PhD. And uh, as you do, it was a, um, a 14th century text written by the monks uh, in some manuscripts that are now housed in Trinity College, Dublin, and and in in the British Museum. And although there is a grammar of Old Irish and obviously modern Irish is well understood, there isn't a grammar of medieval Irish, which is where this falls. These are Iron Age tales that would have been transmitted orally through the centuries, but eventually made it into these monastic manuscripts that are uh, part hagiographies, you know, lives of saints, part biblical verses, part um, pagan pagan stories and mm. and this group of tales was what we call the cattle ray tales, which is actually one of the most famous genres of old Irish literature. The the famous boy hero of Old Ireland, a, a character called Cahulan, is memorialised in Dublin post offices post office and is something of a symbol of the of Irish nationalism, and and he is from this group of tales, which is mm. in my case the story was 
the original tale for seven brides for seven brothers. It's seven young princes that go into the western territories of Ireland while the, and while the father is away, they fall in love with and elope with seven daughters of the king there, taking all his cattle with them. And cattle were the ancient economic unit of Ireland, as they are in, 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 in many ancient societies. Mm-hmm. And, and this formed one of the minor genre, tales of this larger genre. So it really was a, a very unique and individualised experience. Um, I probably felt halfway through that I, I shouldn't have <laughs> What am I doing? <laughs> but, you know, what it did do is it now en- enabled me to indulge other other pastimes and interests that I had. I worked full-time. That enabled me to work for Department of Defence. Uh, I was working for Naval, Aval- Naval Aviation Logistics Command. I worked for the Native Title Tribunal in some of the latter stages of the PhD. I was able to join the Australian Army Reserves and, and provide, you know, full service there. I worked as a first responder ambulance officer on race courses and football fields. I, I really did. Really? I, I did rescue courses uh, on, and high ropes courses to rescue people in, I guess, uh, outback situations where they might be stranded on a cliff face. So I really was able to indulge all other interests that I had and gain other life experience that I, I really wanted to do and I thought was important before I go into law. So many people go straight through and it's like a factory. They they do their first course, they do their, their legal course, they go into a law firm without really getting out there and experiencing life. And I think life experience is so important for a lawyer because if you're dealing with people, you have to understand how people think and, and how to how to help them get what they need. Brilliant advice. I would I would uh, ferociously agree with that statement. What just go back, you said you were what uh, a rescuer, a frontline responder. What what was that? Well I did two different things. I was interested I did a lot of outdoor activities mm-hmm. where canyoning and abseiling um, in the Australian outdoors. And and I wanted to be able to know if I was rock climbing the Blue Mountains, for example, yes. and my ropes got caught, how could I, you know, how could I get out, prussicking out from the, the line, etc. But also I'd been in situations where I'd seen rock climbers be in precarious situations near me and I wanted to be able to respond. So I did a few courses that would enable to, me to, you know, set up lines to rescue somebody that might be caught in an abseiling situation or or down a cave, or and, and that was just a personal interest of mine. At the same time, uh, I'd, I'd undertaken some sort of medical, uh, obviously not a doctor's, obviously yep. not a professional course, but some sort of medical training to enable me to work for a company that did private ambulance services. And, and we were often on the racetracks out in Western Sydney so that if there was an accident, we could respond and stabilise the patient and transport them immediately to hospital and we were on-site medical care. You've packed a lot in into that uh, into that life. What's um, Danielle? What's next? <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I am here to, you know, I am interested in um, government, yes. and, and the political sphere. But but let's wait and see. I mean, the kids are still young, and I still have two at home with me. So uh, it's important that I devote that they get their their share of of my time. Mum time. Uh, yeah, mom time is important to me. I'm I'm the sort of person that thinks that you know you have a, you have kids, but they deserve your full and utter attention. And it's one of my personal personal beliefs that if I'm with my kids, I'm not checking my phone all the time. I'm not mm. on media because You're present. I, I'm present for them because 
this time comes and goes very quickly. And and I always feel, especially looking at my now eight-year-olds, that the time moves more quickly than you imagine. And before you know it, they, they won't want to be around you anymore. And you might be a slight embarrassment. And, and it's really important in these formative years to be close to them and develop those relationships of, of closeness and trust. And, and so... Yeah, I think it's still a little, it's still a little early, but it's something that I'm, I'm working to sort of see what opportunities exist. So you've lived all over the the world, and Sydney's now home for you at the moment. Where did you, uh, where did you grow up and go to school? I did grow up here in Sydney, and yes. I went to school, school in Edgecliff. So, uh, you know, I am a, I'm a local Sydney. I didn't leave Sydney until I was 34, so I spent most of my time here, though I have done a lot of travel, and for the World Bank I must have visited almost 100 countries. Uh, it's, you have uh, lots of frequent flyer miles. I used to, yes, but, you know, I, I, I took it upon myself if I had to go on a, a negotiation trip, say, to Kazakhstan to negotiate with the government of Kazakhstan to always find a different route to tr- of travel, whether it was one time through Turkey or another time through through Northern Europe, because a, a rest stop is a rest stop, but it would enable me to see a new part of the world. And, and I think you have to also see how people live, uh, when, particularly in a development institution. Mm-hmm. And if I could pass through one of our member countries, that was important to me that I spend, you know, the 24 hours I was meant to be in transit, you know, exploring a bit and, and meeting the people and understand trying to understand the culture so I did I, that that's one of the highlights of the 12 years or so that I worked as an operational lawyer for the bank that I did visit so many countries and 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 have some experience of the lives of the people that we're helping so when you left school in year 12 did you know you wanted to be a lawyer was that always the plan I was open to a range of different careers, yes. uh, provided they had a public element and were people focused. And most people don't think of lawyers as people oriented people. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think they can be. I did look into uh, emergent working as you know, perhaps get, do, getting a medical degree and working yes. in emergency services. Yeah. Uh, I did think about entering government service or entering the diplomatic um, sphere. Uh, but ultimately what I liked about law at the time is I felt it was at the time, and I don't think this is necessarily true today, it seemed to be more portable a career, particularly yes. if you were looking at mm. international international law, than, say, undertaking a medical profession, uh, entering the medical profession. At that time, uh, becoming a doctor with the with the way the AMA was and, and similar medical associations throughout the world, it was quite protected and parochial, and I didn't want to be in a situation where I, 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 my career wasn't portable. I mean, obviously, with Medicine Sans Frontier now and, and other organisations, there is more portability. But I, law off the bat interested me because it had that international global aspect or could do, and I was able to, to move with it. Were you, um, let's just wind the clock back a little bit, were you a good student at school? You know, I wasn't the ducks of the school by any means. Mm. I was a grunt. I worked hard to get the marks that I did. Uh, I remember having a rude shock after year 10 and one particular teacher told me, oh, look, you know, if she works hard, she she might be able to get into an arts course. And that was very bracing for me because it's not where I necessarily saw my academic performance falling. So I really did work very hard in the final two years of school to study 
to get a mark that would enable me to choose what I wanted yes. in life. And and I think that's that's what I was saying before. Not necessarily to get into law, to get into medicine, but to get a mark options. where I had whatever options and opportunities, you know, all options and opportunities available to me. And and that's always when I when I run into young people now, I say, look, you may not know what you want to be. And quite frankly, there are a ton of 40 and 50 year olds walking around no, not knowing what they want to be. <laughs> but always give yourself the maximum opportunities that you can have so that then it's your choice. Yeah? Mm. You can do anything you want, but you have to put yourself in a position where those opportunities are available to you. You mentioned a little earlier about, uh, you know, what's next, you know, potentially... I don't know. I think you mentioned the word government. Have you have you ever considered a career in um, in politics? Yeah, I'm interested in politics. Mm. Of course, I'd have to see you know whether whether there were real opportunities here. I think mm. it does. There is when you've been outside the country for so long, uh, so many people, so many contemporaries that would I guess be competing for pre-selection along with you yes. have had that opportunity to be building relationships That's right. working yep. their way up through a party machine. Mm. They were probably student politicians. I don't come from that 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 field. I was not a student politician. I was interested in politics, but I wasn't actively engaged in that way. And I think there is scope for for bringing people who may be expats or may not have the typical political background into Australian politics, to reinvigorate it, because those experiences are important. There's You need to represent people in their totality, and just having people that come through a machine doesn't necessarily give justice to the Australian uh, public. You want people with a range of experiences, and that includes international experiences. Well, Danielle, it's been fantastic to catch up with you today. We shall um, watch your career with much interest in in the years ahead i hope you get some sleep uh, <laughs> i hope you try to find some sleep um but wow what a what a wonderful uh interview uh talent you are thank you so much for joining us uh on the program today it's been a, a real pleasure catching up with you and thank you thank you so much justin <laughs>